Thank you, guys. I love, on mornings I'm preaching, getting to sing the second time around in 9.30 service. It just struck me, how cool would it be? It would be longer service, and I'm sure that it would affect childcare If we could sing everything we just sang, and then go to the, the sermon, but then go back and sing everything that we just sang at the beginning. I know that's totally impractical, but... You know what Easter eggs are in movies and TV shows? For those of you who aren't familiar, little things that you don't notice the first time through, but on second watch, you start spotting all of these, these details. That's what's just happening to me in the second service. Knowing where we're about to go in Genesis, if we could go back in the end and sing all these things again, I think you'd notice um, how many of these things that we were singing are preparing us for what we're about to hear. Um, but one in, line in particular, I'm just going to point it out. In advance, we just sang uh, this. Oh, what grace that you would see me, two identities, as a child and as a friend. Oh, what grace that God would see us personally as his children and as his friends. That's a sentence worth meditating on. Last Sunday, for those of you who were here, um, was uh, Defending the Fatherless Sunday, and James Yim was here and preached so powerfully on the first of those two identities, right? That God adopts us in Christ. Christ dies for our sin and lives the righteous life that we owed God. And now, by faith, God can count us in Jesus, and by doing so, makes us co-heirs with Christ, Jesus makes Jesus our brother in that sense and full rights as sons and heirs we now have. That's amazing that God would see us that way. Do you see yourself that way this morning? Perceive yourself as God's child? Well, this morning as we're back in the life of Abraham and Sarah, um, I want us to think about that second identity that God now sees us in Christ as his friend. That's stunning that the God of the universe would call any puny, sinful human being fr his friend. You know that God called Abraham his friend? Isaiah 41, God refers to Abraham, my friend, he says. Abraham, that man, my friend. In James 2.23, it connects why. What is the basis of God calling him his friend? Well, Abraham believed God. That was it. He, just, he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So the ground of this identity of being a friend of God is completely on God. It's completely on what Jesus has done. And based on that, God calls us friend. That's stunning. And it's not just Abraham. He didn't just luck out, and he, he's God's friend, and we're all children. We're also friends. Galatians 3, 7 says, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And we're the sons of Abraham by the same way that Abraham became a friend of God. By faith, he, God counts us as righteous. And I believe now God calls us friend. Maybe you're thinking of some of the Easter eggs that we just sang. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Christian, is this the way that you primarily see yourself? Are these two identities the controlling identities in your day-to-day -day life? I hope they are in increasing measure. In trials, as you're going through trials, are the controlling identities, God calls me child and friend in this trial. As you are tempted and you struggle with sin that you hate, that you want to, to destroy and overcome, 
Do you remember in that God calls me his child and calls me his friend? He's near and present. He's a sympathetic high priest, Jesus is. In your failures, and we have them, and the things that we're ashamed of in our insecurities and our guilt is the controlling identity God has called me in Christ, his child and his friend. How about in our longings and our unmet expectations, which Sarah had, as we're going to see in Genesis 18, is the identity that controls the way you respond. God has called me his child and God has called me his friend. That's why we're here this morning to be reassured by that. In Genesis 18, God reassures Abraham and Sarah that he calls them friend. They have true fellowship with him. This covenant he's established is real. It's for reals, as my kids will say. And the events of this passage sort of break into two scenes. Genesis 18, one through eight, this first scene a lot of interaction between the Lord and Abraham. And then in verses 9 through 15, some dialogue between the Lord and Sarah. And I want us to see two points here this morning. They both are related to a friendship or fellowship with God. When it comes to fellowship with God, number one, the honor is all ours. The honor of God calling us friend, the honor is all ours. We're going to see a lot of effort on Abraham's part to honor the Lord, but I hope that we see in that that it points to the greater honor. We're just saying, you deserve the greater glory, God. I think Abraham sees that, and we need to see that. And secondly, when it comes to the fellowship with God, the power to bring us into that fellowship is all his. It's all his. So let's read this scene, Genesis 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a, a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And then Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf tender and good. And he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took the curds and the milk and the calf that he'd prepared and he set it before them. And then he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, 
and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? Well, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. I love this, but Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Let me pray. Lord, this is your word. It was written down in the past so that uh, we might be built up even today. You have spoken to us right now through the reading of your word. We believe that. And Holy Spirit, um, you promised to, to illuminate your word and, and convict from your word and comfort and assure. We pray you would do all those things for each of us as we have need this morning from this text and that we would leave here with a reassurance that you call us friend. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, when it comes to the fellowship with God that we have, the honor is all ours. I think we see this in this interaction between the Lord and Abraham. Look at verse one. Where do we find Abraham at the beginning of this scene? It picks up and he's, he, two things, that, two, two phrases here that should spark our, our memory if we've been paying attention and we've been going through this series together. Uh, he's by the Oaks of Mamre. That's been mentioned before. And he's at the door of his tent. Should take us all the way back to Genesis 12 and 13 where Abraham's story starts. God calls him to come to this land, to leave everything, his household, his kinsmen, all that, and, and bring his family and go to this land. And he does by faith. And he gets to the land and it's filled with all these pagan nations, but God has made him a promise. And so by faith, remember he does two things. Do you remember what they are? Test, pop quiz. He, he, he pitches tents and he builds altars, right? He, he, he doesn't settle down. He doesn't build a house. He remains in tents. He waits on the Lord and his timing to establish him, his, uh, these promises in his life. So he, he lives as a nomad in tents and he begins building altars, staking a claim for the Lord in the midst of this pagan land, oftentimes right up next to shrines to these other pagan gods and idols. And here's one of them at the Oaks of Mamre and he is settled down and he's living in a tent. And this picture in verse one, they're still waiting. He and Sarah, in their old age, they are still waiting. They're still intense. They're still by this altar. They're still worshiping the Lord. They're waiting. In verse two, visitors arrive. Suddenly, I think it's described in a way that's sort of a, oh, where did they come from, right? And suddenly, behold, that's what behold means. It's like, all of a sudden, three men were standing in front of him. And Abraham's response here in the next six or seven verses is all the focus, is what he jumps to when, he, when, when these visitors uh, come. And, and he gives all this honor to these visitors. He treats them with unusually um, honorable hospitality. Now, in Abraham's day, it was customary. It was culturally um, expected even that if, if strangers came through and they were traveling, that you would do them a kindness and give them some water, or give them some food and, and give them a chance to rest. And But I think what we get, we get described here is unusual and over the top um, and extravagant. Abraham sees these visitors and first of all, look what he does in verse two. He runs from the tent door to greet them. That's pretty undignified, right? He sprints out to them and then he bows himself low to the earth. He addresses one of these three men as Lord, 
which we'll come back to in a minute. He refers to himself as the Lord's servant. And then he urges them, he begs, he pleads with them, please stay and allow me the privilege of feeding you and giving you some rest. He, he begs them for the chance. In fact, he understates the offer a bit, probably with the hope that they won't say, oh no, we don't want to put you out, right? Just, just a little water for your feet and just a morsel of bread. Please, just, I just want a token. Just, just stay, would you, if I've found favor in your sight? And then they, they take him up. They say, all right, do as you've said. And in verse six, the preparation of this meal and the detail of serving these visitors, again, it's this high honor that Abraham is showing these guests. Look at the rush he makes to prepare this meal. Suddenly he's like, he's like, uh, he's on Iron Chef America. You're watch Kitchen Stadium and these great chefs come in for a, a battle and they'll pick some one secret ingredient and they have to make like in one hour all these gourmet meals all incorporating that one element and it's very overly dramatic and they lift up the thing on the altar and smoke machine comes out and there's this secret ingredient revealed and the chairman says, Allez cuisine! And the chefs like run in and they're like grabbing food and running back to their thing and they start preparing these meals. That's Abraham right here. He says, if I found favor in your sight, would you stay? And they say, okay, do as you've said. He takes off. Look at, the, look at what it says. It says, first of all, verse six, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah. And then he rushes her. He tells her, quick. That's the first word. <laughs> Husbands, that's not a good uh, advice to you as the first word out of your mouth if you want your, your wife to help you prepare a meal for guests. Quick, he says. And then it, he runs to the herd, verse seven, to get a calf. And he clearly tells the servant to hurry it up because it says the young man prepared it quickly. So he is scrambling quickly. He doesn't want these visitors to leave. So he's getting this meal together fast. We see the high honor he holds his visitors in in the extravagance of the meal. Three seahs of fine flour. For those of you whose ancient Near Eastern uh, units of kitchen measurement is not up to snuff, that's about seven quarts of flour. That's a lot of bread, right? So Sarah, I want you to make a lot of bread. That's a good meal, right? <laughs> lots of bread, lots of bread. Although that's a rookie move on Thanksgiving. Don't fall for it. Don't fill up on bread. Go, go, go for the protein first. Protein, anyway. I, but bread's good too, if there's room. All right, so three seahs of fine, fl fine flour. So don't just make any fine flour, right? And then he doesn't go sniff around the pantry for the best leftovers. He doesn't offer them some beef jerky. He goes and kills an animal right then and there for their lunch. I'm, I've never had enough money to go to one of those restaurants where you can point at the lobster that you want, say, I want to eat that guy right there. And then they go drop it in the pot right there. Maybe some of you have. I've never heard of a restaurant that does that with cows. But that's what he does. <laughs> Abraham runs and not just any old Bessie cow, it's a calf, tender and good. That's, that's the calf for special occasions. That's the one that they just keep feeding and say, you just stay, sit there and be yummy until, until there's a special occasion. That's the one he goes and he kills and he has his servant prepare. We're supposed to see the high regard he has for this visitor here. The time of day, I think, even magnifies the honor. Did you notice again what time of day this is all happening? Verse one, in the heat of the day, that part of the world, the heat of the day is no joke. I don't like doing things 
running around in the heat of the day. And they do all this in the heat. This is siesta time, right? He didn't call it that. He didn't speak Spanish. But this is the time of the day where you don't work. You get somewhere shady and you rest. And he and Sarah and his servant are rushing around to prepare this meal. And then he finally brings it all out, the curds and the milk and the calf, the bread, of course. Don't forget the bread. And he lays it all out. And then he stands by respectfully with a posture of an attendant, right? Do you need a little more yogurt with that? You know, just standing there as his visitors sit and recline and eat and drink. The question is, does Abraham realize who his visitor is? I think he does. I think he does. I think he realizes this isn't just um, any old passerby. Um, The Lord has appeared. He, He addresses one of the three as Lord, which isn't conclusive. Lord could mean just a title of respect to someone who is important to say, like, my Lord. Um, deference, but it was also the word that was used as one of the primary titles for God, Yahweh. They wouldn't pronounce the divine name, but they would refer to him as sovereign Lord, Adonai. So the question is, which of these did Abraham mean? If you don't know, Hebrew is kind of a weird thing. I've never understood this about, you know, early Hebrew. It it was just the consonants, right, Mike? MDiv Mike, early Hebrew, just the, the words were consonants, no vowels, right? Yeah, okay. I know it's been a long time since you're MDiv. What, a, yeah. a year? No, no, it's, it's, uh, it hasn't been I totally put you on the spot. I'm so sorry, Mike. Right, so early on, what would distinguish the pronunciation of the one or the other wasn't in the original text, but later on, we have this text called the Masoretic text, this Hebrew text. They, they got smart. They said, you know, we need some vowels in here. Vowels would help, right? And so based on context and understanding, they inserted some vowel points and made interpretational calls on some of these words. And here in this verse, they went with Lord with a capital L, Sovereign Lord. So the question is, why? Why did they, as they read this, they said, this, is, th- this needs the vowels for sovereign Lord. I think it's the context of what we're just talking about. Why did the author give eight verses to detail all of the preparation and all of what Abraham does if it's not that Abraham realizes this is an extraordinary visitation? I think he understands the Lord has visited him right now. And the honor of this is so great that he wants to, to, to honor his guests, right? And so here's a big point, I think, in this text, in these first eight verses. I want us to see that all the honor Abraham is giving actually demonstrates and shows us the honor he realizes that he's received. I think that's what's going on. Look at verse three, for example. His invitation says, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by. If, if you Look on me with favor. Please stay, he says. And then this offer of a little water, a little bread, which is actually going to end up being a whole feast, I don't think it's just out of mere duty or cultural obligation. Look at verse five. He says, please, please let me give you all these things and share all these things with you since you have come to your servant. That Abraham has found favor in the eyes of his visitors is amazing that the Lord would visit his servant. The honor is all his as he sees it. And all this rushing around to honor his guests just shows that he gets it. His creator and Lord is accepting his lunch invitation and is going to sit and eat with Abraham. I love this. Kent Hughes in his commentary pointed out this is the only place in Scripture until the incarnation when Jesus comes that the Lord ate a meal with a human being. 
This was, not, this was no small event that the Lord would manifest himself and sit down and share a meal with Abraham is a picture. It's a sign of spiritual intimacy. It's a guarantee. This covenant, this fellowship that I say that, we, that you have with me, Abraham, it's for reals. And he says, if I've found favor, and they say, all right. And he hasn't done anything yet. The implication is he has found favor. He does have favor. We know, as we've been reading the text, that by his faith has been counted to him as righteousness in God's eyes. He is a friend of God. But all the running around to, to honor the Lord, I think, demonstrates that he gets it. The Lord has visited me. I'm so glad you're here. That's what it communicates. I'm honored by your presence. The honor is all mine. So I wanted us to stop and think, is this the way we tend to think about the relationship between our honoring and serving God and the honor that we receive from God? Because I think that we get this messed up a lot in the Christian life. We think, okay, we're, we're God's servants. We're called to serve him. And so we need to honor and serve him. But we don't honor and serve him to merit his friendship, to earn it. We don't even honor and serve God out of a reciprocity principle that says, God, in light of the kindness you've shown me in calling me your friend, now, God, you sit back. I, I want to do for you. Now it's my turn, God. The favor always goes one way in this fellowship with God. We receive his grace. We're honored by his love toward us. And, and then we honor and serve him out of that. I do want to make it clear. We actually do owe God our service. He made us. He gives us life and breath and everything. If it were not for him, we would not be. And as such, he is our master. And he is worthy of everything that we have to give him. Jesus said as much. Look at this from Luke 17. Luke, he was, he, Jesus was talking to crowds that obviously had people in there who had servants. And so they knew something about what a master and servant relationship was like in their own household. And so Jesus makes a point. He says, will any of you who has a servant who's plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, oh, come in at once and recline at the table. They're all thinking, yeah, that's not how this works. <laughs> will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? All these people who have servants think, no, that's not the way it works. He says, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, all of a sudden now he turns it and he thinks about you in relationship to doing all that God has commanded. So with you, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. That's true. If we were to serve God perfectly with all we have to give throughout our entire lives, um, that would not earn anything. That, that would merely be our duty. We do owe that to God. He's worthy of that. But here's what's amazing about the gospel and how this works in the Christian life. That all that duty becomes delight when we come to understand that God as our sovereign Lord and master actually hasn't dealt with us the way Jesus described it usually goes with masters and servants. God, as the master of over all, has prepared supper for us. He has dressed himself as a servant. That's what Philippians 2 says. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, 
didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he set it aside. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men so that then he could lay that life down at the cross to pay for the guilt of our sin. That's our master. Jesus is the only one who's ever found favor with God on his own merits. His whole life was pleasing to God in thought, word, deed, attitude. And having lived that obedient life, he gave it as a sacrifice for us to atone for our sin. And now God says to us, you can have favor with me based on the favor I have for my son. You believe in him and I will view you the way I view him. What an honor. The honor in the gospel is all ours. Any honor we now show God by serving him and living to make his name known ought to flow out of this understanding that the honor is all ours. I think Abraham's rushing around helps us think, realize these things. So when it comes to fellowship with God, the honor is truly all ours. And the Lord had come to Abraham, honored him with his presence, sat down. He received the meal that Abraham made for him. How kind. He affirmed Abraham, had found favor, had true fellowship, was a friend of God. But it was about to get even better. That's not all that the Lord had visited to do. He had come with an announcement. Verse 9. As they sit down to the meal, here comes the announcement. And the big point in this is the power is all God's to bring about all these plans that will one day uh, lead to God uh, having fellowship with people from every tribe and nation. Look at where the second scene begins. First scene, Abraham standing at the door of his tent. Second scene begins, uh, Sarah is inside the door of the tent listening. As they're eating, verse 9 and 10, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. This week as I was reading that, this time next year, the thought struck me, we have a date, people. <laughs> Since Genesis 12, God keeps showing up and keep promise, keeps promising, but now we have a date, finally. It's always been, it's going to happen. Trust me, it's going to happen. Now he says, this time next year, I thought back to the day that Betsy and I got the FedEx delivery of the referral, the adoption referral and first baby pictures we saw of our daughter, Lily Mae. It was a Monday morning. Sunday night before, we had been with our grace group and we were frustrated. <laughs> it had been a long wait, two years. And we, we had admitted all this stuff and our grace group just prayed and said, Lord, they're tired of waiting. <laughs> Monday morning, I was late for work. And we go to the door and there's this female FedEx carrier with this giant envelope. And Betsy and I burst into tears and freaking out with joy. And she's like, what, have, <laughs> what, what am I holding here, you know? And then we explain it to her. And my recollection is she teared up a little bit too. <laughs> but is this Sarah's response when we, she finally gets a date? It's going to happen? It's not. Sarah waited a lot longer than we had. Not just two years. Look at verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, 
shall I have pleasure? This wasn't a happy laugh. This was a cynical laugh. This was a discouraged, hopeless laugh. Think about it. She had been barren for her whole life. She's 90 now. Let's just say she had, the Lord gave her 50 years before the way of women ceased to be with her. Can you imagine how many months she came to the end of her cycle waiting for a sign that there was life growing in her womb? Only to be disappointed again? Hundreds of times, if you do the math. She probably waited and then... And then here in our text, it points out it's, she's doubly dead in terms of childbearing because now the million to one chance she might have still held out that maybe has passed because her body has, has gone through menopause. She, she's, she's passed that. So now it's like God has just shut the door and locked and, and, and thrown away the key. You can understand why she laughed. So when she hears this man outside the tent say, next year... She says, after I'm worn out, the Lord's going to give me that pleasure? In other words, no way. And God says, way. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, way. He reiterates the promise he made. First, he calls her out on his question. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Now that she's old is precisely when God has planned to give her a child. After she's worn out is exactly when God wants to give her this pleasure. We should ask in, in stories like this, as God's uh, redemption story is unfolding, why is he doing it this way? That's a good question to ask as you read narratives uh, in, in the Bible. Why this way? Why wait until after she's worn out to do that? The Lord frequently waits until things look impossible or are impossible from our perspective, hopeless. Just think, why would God lead Israel out to the edge of the Red Sea, pinned against the water, and, and wait until Pharaoh's army is barreling in on the horizon before then telling Abraham to stretch out his hand and, and parting the sea and leading them through to victory? Why would God lead Israel out to a desolate, waterless place and allow their throats to start feeling dry before then he brings water out of a rock. Why, centuries later, does he allow 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to surround the city of Jerusalem, yelling threats over the walls, making them shake in their boots before in one night while they sleep, the Lord just wipes them all out single-handedly? Why would Jesus, when he gets news that his beloved friend Lazarus is dying on his deathbed, does he wait two more days before then he goes, ensuring Lazarus is going to be dead and buried by the time he gets there? It's so that he can show up and say, Lazarus, rise. So that it's crystal clear that these things that are impossible for you are nothing for me. That's why God works these ways. That's why he waits until this woman is 90 and has been barren all her life. To make it clear, that's no barrier for me. How does this point us forward then to Christ? Well, here's the question. What does God's word present to us as the most impossibilist thing for us to do by ourselves? 
justify ourselves, remedy the problem our sin has created. That's the, that's the most impossible thing presented to us in the Bible. That's the one thing that's so clear, we can't do it. We cannot restore ourselves into the good graces of a holy God. The more we try, we, we just keep, our sin just keeps getting deeper. We, that is impossible for us. More impossibler than a 90-year-old woman getting pregnant and having a baby. Jesus agreed with that, by the way. Remember that rich young man comes to Jesus and has this interaction? And this guy has lived an exemplary life. He's, a God honor, he's lived a God-honoring life, sincerely. And Jesus says, well, just sell your stuff and come follow me then. And, and he puts his finger on the one thing that the, the guy wasn't willing to do. This guy who was willing to do everything, to give his whole life for the Lord. And his disciples say, if that guy can't get in, if, it's, if that guy is hard to get into the kingdom of God, who can be saved? What chance do any of us have if that guy can't get in? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. You're right. But with God, all things are possible. And the gospel, I think, ties together these two main points we're thinking about this morning. First, Christ has done what was impossible for us. He lived a life that perfectly honored God at every step in our place. And then he laid that life down as a sacrifice. And by faith in him, the God for whom nothing is impossible now finds favor with us. And he actually grants us the honor of being called his friend. Fellowship. Right there, those two truths that then uh, undergird our identity as child of God, friend of God. Right now, I shouldn't have to enumerate any points of application. When we get that, it'll express itself in thousands of ways of application, won't it? We will live out of that identity in ways that honor and please God. I want to point out just two, two things I think should be radically affected by us getting that nothing is impossible for God and by grace he has honored us with his forever friendship. First, it should radically assure us of our salvation. Do you rest in God's declaration over you that you are seen as righteous in Jesus? He sees you as clean, forgiven. Or do you, like me, struggle with fixating on your own sin and your weakness and your brokenness and it feels helpless and you feel guilty and you laugh to yourself sometimes like Sarah in your heart and think that's just too hard, too hard for him to forgive, too wonderful to be true that God could declare me righteous when I look at this. This passage is reminding us to say, no, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing was impossible with Christ. He's paid it fully and completely. The other thing that should radically affect is the way we pray. <laughs> that over, above anything has been on my mind this week. Do I pray, do my kids at dinner table, as they listen to me pray, does that give them the impression that the God I'm talking to spoke galaxies into existence? Who has no limits or boundaries? Do I pray in a way that demonstrates that's who I'm talking to? Do we pray with the expectancy that we should pray in light of the God to whom we pray? We don't. We don't get this. We ought to. Some of you this morning, I've been praying, there are things you've stopped praying for, like Sarah. You've just stopped. And this morning, the Lord wants you to start praying for again 
people he wants you to start praying for. Again, sin in your life that you've just given up and just assumed, it's, I'm always going to be that way. He wants you to start praying for again. Because nothing is impossible with him and he calls you his friend. I want us to take a minute and do that right now. To start some of that prayer right now silently. I want to continue in your grace groups, continue in your family, in your homes this week. But right now, for a couple of minutes, we're going to just be silent. I want you to talk to the Lord. Maybe start, Lord, what did you need me to hear this morning? How do I need to pray, Lord, in light of this? Maybe you need to begin bringing those prayer requests that you'd quit on back to him again this morning and ask him to give you faith to persevere. Maybe you need to repent. Of, of a cynical, pessimistic heart that has crept in in certain areas of your life and you need to repent of that. Talk to the Lord. Heavenly Father, you're worthy of lives that fully honor you and serve you in all things. That whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, that we would do it all to your glory. You're worthy of that, Lord. And Lord, there's some here, I'm sure, that they are all about those things but maybe for the wrong reasons. And Lord, I pray this morning you'd help get hearts right, oriented that this is all about the honor that we've received and that our, our service would flow from that and be a delight to us more than just duty. Lord, for, for some here this morning, living lives that do not honor you, they don't serve you, again, because we don't understand how greatly you've honored us through Christ. And I pray, Lord, this morning, even as we finish in this service by taking the Lord's Supper, that you would remind us and you'd send us out these doors like Abraham, running, eager to bring you honor and glory in our lives. God, I pray for those of us who are feeling hopeless this morning, feeling discouraged, feeling weak, that we would be strengthened with the knowledge that you have all power and you are on our side. You call us friend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.